from KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach. Coming up on today's show, we dive into how to be safe in the backcountry after recent avalanches and rescues. Even though it's just, you know, bluebird powder days, if you put a bunch of snow on top of old snow, it's going to probably slide somewhere. And people and canines from all over the world invade Wyoming for an annual sled dog race. The views are unbelievable, you know, so that's things, the trails, it's it's a, a dream come true for us flatlanders that live in Minnesota that don't see hills and mountains. Those stories and more on today's show. The Rocky Mountain West region is seeing more snow this winter than it has since 2017, which means more powder-hungry skiers and snowboarders are going out in the backcountry. But this also comes with an increased risk of avalanches. From Wyoming Public Radio, Caitlin Tan has the story. It's a sunny bluebird day in the foothills of the Wyoming Range in western Wyoming, one of the more popular trailheads in the area for snowmobilers. Sublet County's Tip Top Search and Rescue is hosting a public avalanche awareness class on this brisk morning. John Cochever is leading the class. He's a cheerful, tall guy with a contagious laugh. A small group of bundled up skiers and snow machiners gather around. We have struggled in the past with not getting very many people and then there was the accident. The accident was about five years ago. A local man died in an avalanche not far from this trailhead. I think it really raised awareness in the communities about the hazards that can be in the hills and actually close to the trail. You hear a lot of people talk about, oh, it's safe, it's right next to the trail. Well. It isn't always. And this year, avalanche conditions have been pretty variable. That cold spell in December where it was 20 below and even colder for days on end created a weak layer in the snow. And the wind didn't help. Weak layers are what can make snow unstable and can lead to avalanches. But there is good news. Gabrielle Antonoli with the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center says all the new snow is helping. That layer is sort of just getting very deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's good because we have a lower likelihood of triggering it. But Antonoli says that doesn't mean the weak layer completely disappears either. The likelihood is lowering of triggering it, but the consequence of triggering it is quite high. Because if we do, it's it's a really big avalanche. She says last year, avalanche conditions were relatively low in the western U.S. There just wasn't much snow to begin with. And so the sun was out a lot, sort of baking the snow and making it super solid, not so unstable. But this year, Antonoli expects that the weaker layers of snow are here to stay till spring. So backcountry users need to be prepared and careful. Six guys in the class are shoveling through an eight-foot-tall snowbank that's almost as hard as cement. Cochever says it's what it might feel like digging for someone who's buried by an avalanche. Dig this snow to me! Dig this snow to me! Come on, Ron! Come on, we're digging for your life! Dig this snow to me! Come on, Ron! Now somebody right here, move this pile! 
One guy does the initial shoveling, and the rest move that snow away. As they get tired, they rotate. Right, keep on digging, guys. <laughs> keep on digging. You're young, you're strong. After about 10 minutes, the group gets to the buried object. Cochiever says a buried person has about 15 minutes for a 90% chance of survival. That's as long as the trauma of the avalanche didn't kill them first. Justin Wilkins is a snowmobiler from Sweetwater County. The group he is in is practicing using their beacons. They're a GPS device that can help locate someone who's buried. But that's if everyone has one. The beacons sound kind of like a robot. Wilkins says he tries to practice his avalanche rescue skills every year. I mean, it automatically just heightens your awareness and kind of gives you that adrenaline that you're trying to kind of work against. And I don't know, just uh, if it's your buddy out there, obviously, then you're even more so just on tilling your blood pressure's up. This winter, there's been six avalanche-caused deaths in the U.S., all in the Rocky Mountain West. And with the snow this year, people will likely still be going out into the snowy backcountry even through May. Last season saw 17 fatalities in the country. The local search and rescue does respond to many avalanche calls. And Cochiever says almost every member has responded to a fatal accident involving someone they knew. So we don't want to be finding any of you out there. It's not good. <laughs> it's hard on us also. <laughs> so, like I say, we're not trying to scare you off. We're just trying to give you some information. And with that, he has the group keep on practicing for a couple more hours, all in hopes of never having to use these skills in a real-life scenario. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caitlin Tan in Pinedale. Next up, we talk to a Jackson local about backcountry safety as we enter the busiest time for rescues of the year. Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation's Matt Hansen discusses recent slides and one recent rescue outside Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. A couple of skiers from Utah had taken the 3 p.m. tram at the Jackson Mountain Resort, took a ride up to the summit, and then wanted to go out one of the backcountry gates at the top and ski out through Rock Springs. But on their way down the ridge, one of the skiers told me, quote unquote, they were overcome by powder fever and ended up skiing some low-angled powder, but the opposite direction into Granite Canyon, which is a large avalanche-prone area that leads down into Grand Teton National Park. When they realized their mistake, there's no cell phone service back there, and they ended up hiking out wallowing through four feet of snow back up to the ridge line. It took them about five or six hours. By the time they got back up to the ridge that separates Granite Canyon and Rock Springs, it was after 8 p.m. and put out a call to a friend. The call was dropped. But at that point, the Unified Command, which included the Jacksonville Ski Patrol, Teton County Search and Rescue, and Grand Teton National Park, were able to kind of pinpoint their location near the top of Rock Springs. This isn't an atypical occurrence. People I know most years leave the gates at the resort and often, you know, don't have a plan that they're sticking to and can end up in trouble. What would you want the community to know about venturing into the side country like that? There are some very important things 
that everyone should be doing before they go into the backcountry. The first is to know the avalanche forecast at the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. They do an amazing job of getting that forecast out every day. They're very detailed about the dangers that are possible out there. You need to have the proper equipment that includes a, an avalanche beacon, a shovel, a probe, airbag if you can. But just as important as that equipment is having a formal avalanche education. Just because you have the equipment, it provides some safety, but if you don't know how to use it and if you don't know how to navigate that complicated terrain, especially now with all the snow that we've had, it's not going to do you any good if you are, first of all, making poor choices about route finding and where you are given the avalanche hazard. The other thing is have a partner and also know your outs. We all make mistakes. We all make bad decisions from time to time. And so consider the consequences of your actions before you go into the backcountry. Do you have a way out? Do you have a way to communicate with the outside world in case something should happen? If you get injured, are you able to figure out a way to self-rescue? Because if the weather turns bad, if it gets dark and you're injured or lost or cold, the search and rescue volunteers, they will do everything possible to come and get you. But if it's too dangerous for them to go out in the field, they're going to wait until it gets less dangerous. And so being able to self-rescue is very important. When we get into the middle of the winter, when it's very cold, the avalanche danger is high. That leads me into my next question. On January 30th, we saw a slide on Taylor Mountain off the pass. Tell me about what we saw there. After... Numerous days of heavy snowfall, a lot of clouds, you know, not much visibility. And then it got sunny and very cold. And when that happens, people tend to, even despite these sub-zero temperatures, people tend to, especially in this community, start venturing out into the mountains. And the Teton County Search and Rescue Team was alerted to a very large avalanche on the south face of Taylor uh, this has also been the site of accidents over the years, including a, a fatality on April 1st, 2020, on that same exact slope. And Taylor is a really big mountain with multiple avalanche paths um, right above the Coal Creek parking lot. It had appeared to be triggered by a solo skier who was skiing the very top ridge of Taylor, and luckily... That person wasn't caught in the slide, and the team was not able to find any signals from an avalanche beacon or other device. And after interviewing people on the ground, the team felt really confident that there was nobody, nobody had been caught in that slide. And that was really lucky because that was a huge avalanche. I think it's just a really good reminder for everyone out there to have situational awareness about where you are and where you're skiing and who might be below you. You know, we're headed into more the depths of the winter here. What else are you concerned about as we go further into February? This time of year that we're heading into is one of the busiest times of the year for Teton County Search and Rescue. As the snow piles up, people start to venture farther into the backcountry. Uh, we have seen, we know that when it snows a lot, the team sees more rescues. So during really big storm cycles, 
people need to be careful as well as right after the storm cycle. Make sure that even though it's just, you know, bluebird powder days, that if you put a bunch of snow on top of old snow, it's going to probably slide somewhere. It's just a good idea to be to be cautious and and build in extra margins of safety. Even if you are just going out for a quick lap on the pass, absolutely make sure that you check, do a beacon check every single time. Let people know where you are and have a plan and just be safe out there because the winter is too great of a time and it's such a fun time of year that things can go bad really fast. So just be aware of that. That was Matt Hansen with the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Impact from KHOL. I'm reporter Hannah Mersbach, and this is our podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop most Fridays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up next, this year's Wyoming Pedigree Stage Shop Sled Dog Race has wrapped up. Hundreds of dogs ran across the Western Mountains for more than a week, ending recently outside Driggs in Idaho. A Canadian team took top honors for the fifth year in a row, breaking records. The Cowboy State Soul Team, led by musher Alex Crittenden, came in second, a personal best. Other crews came from across the U.S. and the globe to compete. KHOL's Tyler Pratt spoke to some of the people and canines who return each year for what they say is their favorite race in the lower 48. Racer Bruce Magnuson from Michigan stands with a group of handlers at the finish line at the Pack Saddle Lake Trailhead as dog teams cross the finish line one by one. This is my 18th year here. The communities are awesome. The race is awesome. The people in the race, it's the whole thing. It just keeps me coming back. Handler Brian Poulin is next to him. He's from Manitoba in Canada. He's been part of sled dog racing for half a century. My wife's family had dogs their whole life and I got into it when I was about 12, 13 years old, and and uh, my son Donnie, he 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 started he started riding the runners when he was that big, and and he's been on them ever since. So, yeah. And when asked what keeps him at it, there's, a, there's no cure for this disease. <laughs> a first timer at the stage stop is Dean Weiss. He came from a few states to the east to help his son run his first race in Wyoming. The views are unbelievable, you know. So that's things, the trails, it's, it's a, a dream come true for us flatlanders that live in Minnesota that don't see hills and mountains. <laughs> a woman running the whole show is Haley Sloan. She walks around with big white sunglasses and a fuzzy brown hat. She's what's known as the race roundabout. I like do everything. I'm just part of the circus and I jump from like thing to thing and I yeah, I wear a cool hat and cool sunglasses and I do the bag check so I make sure um, the mushers have the required gear before they launch and when they come back and we kind of do random bag checks because they need to have the required gear for safety and just for like weight purposes as well. As a team of dogs rounds the bend, Stone comments over the static of a walkie-talkie that all 10 dogs are there. 
the same amount she started with. If a dog starts limping or starts to look tired, they'll pick them up and, and put them in the basket of the sled and just give them a free ride. So that's good. Her team's running strong and looking healthy. One team that had a strong finish is led by Wyoming's Alex Crittenden. After napping second place, she says she's proud of her dogs. These guys are so good. I can't believe they just did what we just did, you know. She thanks her pack leader, Juniper, for helping her have a particularly good day in the middle of the race. June was like, get over here, get over here. And one time she even booped the other leader with her nose, like, boop, like that, and yanked really hard and was like, no, we're running here. So pretty cool to watch her do that. She lets Juniper out of the trailer, who spent the last leg of the race getting a rest day. Were you having a good nap up there? Is that what it was? Did he wake you up from your nap? So yeah, pretty crazy. Like, she was never one of my greatest dogs of all time, you know, but she's just always been there. She always, you know, seems to just come out of nowhere and save the day. Like the racers and crew, some dogs have done this event before. For others, it's their first time, and many will be off on other races soon. After they finish, they're still excited. They bark and howl, eat kibble, and drink water. Vets come around and check them out. Crew members and fans give them pets and rubs. And some even get doggy massages. Tyler Pratt, KHOL News. Honky Tonk Tunes are coming to Wilson. Pete Muldoon and the Pilgrims are playing country classics every Wednesday night this winter at the Stagecoach. The former Jackson mayor has been a staple of the region's music scene for more than 20 years. Whether as a DJ or the frontman for another group, the alternative country band Major Zephyr. Muldoon recently joined KHOL in studio and sat down with music director Jack Catlin. My dad was a musician, grew up in Ireland and was a piano player. So we always had a, when he emigrated over here, he, first thing he bought was a piano. And we had one in the house growing up. I started playing at five. I was a classical piano player growing up and did that for quite a while. Uh, and then kind of got to the point where I had to make the choice between practicing eight hours a day and doing other things. <laughs> and so I ended up doing other things uh, and kind of let it go for a while. Never really got away from music. One of my first jobs was DJing at 17 in a bar in Louisiana. And I stuck with that for a long time and then eventually kind of made my way back to piano, but with singing and, or to music, but with singing and, and with a guitar and then kind of later picked the piano back up. So I've been focusing on that a lot lately. But as far as the honky tonk, well, the first band I was in here in Jackson did a lot of Johnny Cash. That was really you know the hot thing at the time. Um, and that led me into uh, Major Zephyr, which is a kind of alternative country, outlaw country band. It's something that works for me vocally, and I really enjoy it. And you know when I made that record, I put a lot of pedal steel on it. That led me to listening to a lot more to, to classic kind of country. And you know there's a big difference, and those eras are pretty short, maybe mm -hmm. 10 years long at the most for some of them. And I really like the feel of, of that era of country from the 60s. It's, the songs are really short. They're two to two and a half minutes long. They're great for dancing. They're very lyrically focused and based. There's not much, there's no jamming. You know, you might get a 15 or 30 second solo at most during them. They're quick, they're good, they're over, and you do another one. 
<laughs> That's a great, great template there. So Honky Tonk Wednesdays focuses on country songs from the 60s, like you just mentioned. The quote-unquote golden era of country music. In fact, it's the 1960s Bakersfield and Nashville songs that you're most drawn to. For those that may not be familiar, what specifically draws you to that specific era of country music? And why did you want to perform those songs for the local community here in Jackson? Well, the whole Bakersfield scene that came out in the 60s, which was like Merle Haggard and Buck Owens, is fascinating, and the songs are great. And at the time, I think, we probably don't look back on them and think of it this way now, but I think they were very groundbreaking in the production techniques and in, in, and in the arrangements. Uh, and they're similar to some of the songs that came out of, the, out of Nashville in the 60s. And Nashville picked up on some of that. Uh, then there's a whole Contrapolitan and uh, you know, the Nashville sound that is a lot more you know, background harmonies and string sections and all that. And that stuff is good. And it's not to, you know, we also could not play that. <laughs> like we don't have a, we don't have the Jordan airs up there on stage with us and we don't have six violins and a bunch of cellos. So, uh, but I really like the, you know, that, that kind of stripped down, the Bakersfield sound was very stripped down and that it, it's the sound it's where, you know, pedal steel is in the forefront of that. It's just really good drinking and two-stepping and Western swing style music. Like it's mm -hmm. great for dancing and it's gritty and it's great. So how has the reception been so far? Is the idea in some way a continuation of the church nights that have been running on Sundays for over 40 years or is it a completely different thing? It's a completely different thing. I, you know, there's nothing really to compare the stagecoach band with. They're, mm -hmm. they're a unicorn in the industry, <laughs> yeah. you know, in the, in the sense of having played together for so long in one venue. I don't know if anyone else has ever done anything like that. We're not remotely trying to compare, compete, uh, continue. They're their own thing. The reception, you know, the first week, a lot of the happy hour folks out there at the stagecoach were kind of like, why is there a band in here on Wednesdays? <laughs> you know, we didn't see the posters. Uh, and, but a few, a few people showed up in the, the second week, a few more, the third week, a few more. And, and we, so this last week was the fourth week. We had a, a really good crowd and we, you know, every week we've been getting more dancers. We had some great dancers out there. We had some people who were just learning and wanted to practice in a, in a place where there's a little more space and it's a little quieter than some of the other places you might dance in town. Uh, so I think it's been going great. I'm looking forward to tonight. That was local musician and former Jackson mayor, Pete Muldoon. Water officials across the West have been negotiating a crisis on the Colorado River. Drought is putting pressure on the seven-state basin, and the nation's two largest reservoirs recently reached record lows. The Mountain West News Bureau's Will Walkie looks at how states such as Wyoming are being affected by the prospect of a drier future. Are you oh my God, that is the one. No way, that's prehistoric. A grinning fisherman needs two hands to hold a massive lake trout on a sunny day at the Flaming Gorge Reservoir, which straddles Wyoming and Utah. He's going, he's going, good, 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 that's even better. He's standing on Jim Williams's boat. Williams has been a guide here for over 30 years and says some of the best trophy fish in the Rockies call these waters home. I have a lot of clients over the years on the boat that on somewhere on one trip or another will say, that's the biggest fish I've ever caught in my life. There's a lot of satisfaction from that. But this habitat has seen some drastic changes in a short amount of time. In the past two years, this reservoir has dropped to its lowest level since the 80s. Marinas and river channels are running dry. Relating to the drought, there's fewer places to launch a boat. And we're going to probably lose another one this year if 
unless we get a whole lot of water coming down, and they hold it. One of Flaming Gorge's primary uses is storage for the rest of the Colorado River Basin. The Bureau of Reclamation oversees federal water management and released a lot of water downstream last year, about as much as a million households use per year. Williams expects more drawdowns in the near future. If I had a young son right now that was 10 or 12 years old, I don't know that I'd want to get him really hooked on fishing, not just because of the drawdown on this lake, but this water issue we're talking about west why? The releases from Flaming Gorge were primarily to prop up Lake Powell, the nation's second largest reservoir. It almost stopped creating hydropower last year because it got so low. Valerie Deppi is with the Bureau of Reclamation and says Powell's health is still a concern, despite a wet winter in the Mountain West so far. Generally speaking, it's great that we've had this snowfall that we've had. But again, you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Other upstream reservoirs like Blue Mesa in Colorado or Navajo in New Mexico have also been tapped in recent years and could be again. How to maintain Lakes Powell and Mead has been the subject of intense negotiations in recent weeks. The seven states in the Colorado River Basin, from California to Wyoming, have been asked to agree on a management plan to cut water use. But Utah State Professor Jack Schmidt says finding common ground is no easy task. It's hard and it's messy. It's been hard and messy for more than 100 years. Officials have recently released two different proposals. One was from the Upper Basin, plus Nevada and Arizona. It doesn't include the largest user on the river, California, and wants that state to make most of the cutbacks. Schmidt says higher elevation states propose nothing mandatory. There's essentially no commitment to reduce consumption in the Upper Basin at all. There's a suggestion to maybe do it. But there's no commitment to do it. States like Wyoming and Colorado say they don't consume as much as downstream places and shouldn't cut more. California, meanwhile, has its own plan that spreads out more of the conservation burden. But Schmidt says now is not the time to point fingers, especially in a snowy winter that could really improve the situation if states take full advantage of it. Worst case is we just chug along and say, oh, we, you know, we don't really have to save this year. And then what happens if this is a one-off year and next year we go back to being really dry? He says everyone needs to do their part in the face of climate change and rapid development in the region. But a pilot program in the Upper Basin that would pay users like farmers and ranchers to conserve water has struggled to attract interest. Officials extended the deadline to apply by a month to March 1st to conduct more outreach. For now, what the Bureau of Reclamation can control is its reservoirs, like at Flaming Gorge. Recreationists like fishing guide Jim Williams understand that, but still feel powerless. We get what's left. We are enjoying the leftovers, and if our leftovers go away, I don't know, we got to adapt. If states can't agree on sufficient water cuts, the federal government says it will impose them. For Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Will Walkie. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Hannah Mersbach, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.